You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. Where you've come from is gone. Where you thought you were going to never existed, and where you are is no good unless you can get away. Where is there a place for you to be? Nowhere. But if you've got a good car, then you do not need to be redeemed. Ladies and gentlemen, this is the church where the blind don't see, the dead don't walk, and where the lame don't walk, and where what's dead stays that way. This is the Agony Column Live tonight with me. In the bookstore, I have the incredible Matt Stewart, author of The French Revolution. And next to him is Joshua Moore, author of Termite Parade. And some things that meant the world to me, this book, as counterintuitive as it may seem, if when you hear him read from the Termite Parade, was an Oprah Magazine top ten Who would have thought, oh my God, I can't wait to have these guys read. I have a host a show uh, every Sunday from 6 to 7 on KUSP 88.9 FM. And you can find my my blog and podcast at bookotron.com slash agony. We're going to start this evening's show with readings by each of the authors. And then we're going to have a fabulous discussion about redemption, uh, publishing, because there's some very interesting publishing stuff going on with both of these gentlemen, and uh, the the gritty, fun world of San Francisco. Um, Matt, are you ready to rock? I'm ready to rock, always. Okay, so uh, I'm going to read a section. There's a lot of, I think there are a number of apocalypses in this, so that's uh, <laughs> fitting the theme. Yeah, we're, we're talking about personal apocalypse tonight, and... and and also, one, one last uh, thing I need to mention. Um, everybody here sitting in this audience who buys the books gets to get pick one of these free. There's some fantastic hardcover signed by the author books here. Uh, so buy a book from Capitola Book Cafe, get one free. Um, let's go, Matt. Okay, so the only setup you really need for this one is a uh, Esmeralda is in a compound in Marin, an underground extreme food training ground compound in Marin with uh, a reclusive chef who is a master. They return to the kitchen with a bucket of silky butter, which they use to bake a guava flan pie paired with spearmint ice cream and topped with chorizo brisket. Holy hacksaw, we got ourselves a hit, Esmeralda declared three bites in. What do you say we go to Vegas, put our names in lights? Not so fast, Bruce said, jotting down a list of unwelcome supplementary flavors he noticed after chasing his sampling with cheap red wine. Doesn't work with young Merlots. Who eats guava flan pie with wine? The French? (laughs) Obviously, she said, and plunged into a round of merry guffaws until she saw he really meant it. Additionally, if you let the pie settle in an environment warmer than 79 degrees, the guava tastes off, almost rotten, The chorizo's smokiness feels congested and slightly unnatural, like car camping as opposed to a backcountry hike. For people drinking gin cocktails, the pie will sometimes have a bitter aftertaste. 
Yeah, well, they'll live and love. She licked her fork clean, felt the warmth in her chest settle and spread. Come on, Brucey boy, this pie's the bomb. It slices, it dices, it'll do your laundry and mow the lawn. Hell, you could sell it for brunch since it's got fruit and sausage. Perfect for him and her. Let's put it out and get rich. Bruce completed his notes and took another swig of Merlot, his eyes misting and contorting. Sweat beaded to his forehead like lunar modules. It's not perfect, he informed her. It's pretty darn close, she responded. What are you, chicken? Bruce splashed down another hit of wine and explained in a low voice that as a young pastry chef known as Herman Sprutz, he'd worked at Vita Vita, an ultra-hip experimental restaurant in an unmarked warehouse lost in the thick of the dog patch, where he put together several of the most decadent dessert offerings ever known to mankind, one of which had been dressed with a, with a synthetic compound not far off from heroin that had indirectly resulted in the deaths of multiple dinner guests, primarily Japanese tourists, but a few Americans and, toward the end, one local. A reliable and simple-minded mail carrier celebrating his 60th birthday with a rare night out. Court proceedings had absolved Herman of all liability, but the mail carrier's family and dinner companions had raised a stink in the local media, with all the families on his daily route piling on, so that the name Herman Sprutz, while beloved by serious gourmands across the globe, had been effectively turned to mush in Northern California, and most of the world as well. No eatery would let him in the door. Investors shunned his new restaurant pitches. He couldn't even get a job sacking groceries. So he'd gone the name-changing and plastic surgery route, emphasizing squares and hard corners, projecting strength through his face. After a lengthy recovery on a remote Thai island, he'd launched his comeback, running a low-budget churro stand in the mission called Zoog's Chocolate Fugue, a clever bit of assonance backed up by a sensational chocolate dipping sauce that attracted a huge number of intoxicated San Franciscans after bars closed and generated more than enough buzz to open the mind-shattering North Beach cake shop he'd always dreamed of. From whence came the fame, the money, the freedom to seek perfection in his own personal underground lair. I often invoke the metaphor of music, he concluded. A conductor strives to intertwine the talents of excellent individual musicians to produce impeccable orchestral experiences, a universe of sound. With all the variables cross-tabulated and accounted for, can we create a masterful experience every time? Can perfection be sustained? Will the concerto linger in the blood for the rest of the listener's life? Probably not, Esmeralda drawled, helping herself to another plate of pie. People got too much to remember. No. Superior experiences are always so. Think back to your most electrifying life events. Esmeralda dug back in the mud, came up with high school graduation and gossip magazines, a lot of time on the couch, hours of television and dozing and solitaire and snacks. These are immortal sources of joy. The brasserie in Paris, the cafe in Rome, the funnel cake at the county fair, the stuff of memories and deathbed reminiscing. These are the moments that make life worth living. This is the food I must make. Esmeralda gave the thought a couple of nods, then polished off her slice and picked her teeth clean with the fingernail. Spend your life chasing perfect and you'll probably never get it. So I say you get pretty close and drink up. Like this pie. She knifed off a little sliver. That last piece, that was it, to prove her point only. Damn good so long as you don't drown it in shit French wine. Bruce untucked his napkin, rose, and poured the remainder of his wine over the pie plate. Good night, he said leadenly and departed, leaving Esmeralda to fully explore the chemical interactions between Merlot, guava, flan, and chorizo. She forced down the rest of the prototype in the noble name of research.
The next day, they worked on a barley wine pudding that literally simmered on the tongue, evaporating into a spray that coated teeth and needed a slice or two of olive cherry bread to level out, ideal for rustic retreats and destination restaurants, and even gourmet camping trips. Bruce found it overpowering when consumed with a half bottle of Fino Sherry, but Esmeralda managed to push down all of her portion as well as Bruce's leftovers, then finished the other half of the cinnamon bottle for the sake of completeness. Next night was a cottage cheese stuffed pork roast slathered with hickory and lime. A couple flecks too dry for Bruce, impeccable according to Esmeralda. All it needed was a six-pack of Hefeweizen to flush out the juices. On it went, a vat of crawfish jambalaya, squid truffle paste, cherry apple pork chop marmalade, gooseneck onion goulash brewed with platinum flakes, emu casserole slow-cooked with periwinkle nutmeg and served with gingerbread pretzels, candy cane venison stew, armadillo caper soup. Each dish loaded with otherworldly flavor sensations, titillating textures and exquisite composition, an overarching sense of painting on a bigger canvas, the sweep of history, and that was before they got to the desserts. Cookies, brownies, puff pastries, pies, ice cream, sherbets, puddings, all exquisite and headline-worthy, but the cakes dwarfed everything else. Towering leviathans, slice after slice liquefying in Esmeralda's mouth, alighting the dim portions of her brain and helping her see across continents, into the future, through the webbing of souls. Though Esmeralda was firmly agnostic and knew the cakes were born of trial and error, centuries of scientific research, and a generous dose of luck, she couldn't eat a slice of Bruce's cake without feeling the warm breath of God upon her. Thank you, man. <laughs> I, I, I want that pork roast. <laughs> after, we'll be serving some of those after the... Uh, Josh? Oh, sure. Yeah. Batter up. Batter up. <laughs> Do I need to turn this? Yeah, yeah, you want to get on the mic. Is that better? Yeah, that's perfect. Hi, how's everybody doing? Good, good. Hungry now. <laughs> yeah, right? Well, this will uh, not help your appetite <laughs> whatsoever. Because we're going to a lovely Reno, Nevada, and terrible things are about to ensue. Um, this is from fairly deep in my second novel, Termite Parade. Uh, but all you really need to know about it is that one of the characters, Derek, who will be narrating the section, has done something terrible uh, to his girlfriend and has fled San Francisco to Reno for some needed uh, recuperation time. The chapter is called Go Wombats. I still wasn't ready to go into a casino, wanting to get a few bourbons in me before I braved the whirling lights and farm boys on crystal meth and people slurping every cent from their welfare checks. Reno didn't get the same stature of customer as Vegas, more hillbillies than celebrities, more bounty hunters than paparazzi. I went into a small bar, played video poker and slugged shots of wild turkey, kept smoking cigarettes. There wasn't a woman in the whole place just a bunch of horny lowlifes hunched over electric machines hoping to make a couple bucks. The guy playing poker next to me clapped his hands and said, looks like someone's leaving $49 richer. Just then, a team of men, a literal team, fat guys wearing white sneakers and softball jerseys waddled in, screaming, extra innings victory, to the victors go the spoils. I don't know about any spoils, the bartender said to the team, but how about a couple free pitchers of beer? 
clapping fat hands, white sneakers squeaking on the floor, men in softball jerseys high-fiving and whooping, awful mustaches between their noses and mouths like angry weeds. A couple of them even barked like dogs. The bartender poured three pitchers of beer, pulled chilled plastic mugs from a fridge, and filled them. Congrats on the game, boys, he said. The whole team held up their draft beers, howling, Go Wombats! and adjusting their baseball hats. Or were they called softball hats? <laughs> anyway, hats were adjusted. Light beer was drunk. Suddenly, I wanted to throw up on my video poker machine, surrounded by all these wombats, wearing jerseys, and ejaculating pride. I went into the bathroom, which was one of those places that didn't have separate urinals for men to piss in, just a huge trough we all had to belly up to. I pulled my cock out and dialed my voicemail two new messages, the first from my girlfriend. People who love each other are supposed to be there for the bad times. Right as I was erasing it, two wombats <laughs> wobbled into the bathroom on their squeaky white sneakers. I stood at the middle of the trough, so one of them came up on either side of me. I was still pissing as they pulled their pricks from their uniforms. One of them said, I never thought we'd beat those surly bastards. And the other said, we surely did just that. And his buddy said, we showed them sons of bitches who God is. And his friend said, no, we showed them who God was. Remember to watch your tenses. His friend said, yeah, yeah, thanks, professor. We aren't all lucky enough to teach the seventh grade. <laughs> While I eavesdropped, I played Meyer's next message. Where did you go? We need to talk. I erased it before I had to hear the rest. What do you think you're doing? One of the wombats said to me, the one situated on my left. I tucked the phone between my ear and shoulder. Who, me? Yeah, you. Who else might I be directing my question to? The other wombat leaned forward toward the trough so he could see us as we spoke. What's wrong, I said, letting my dick hang free and shutting the phone which I stuffed in my pocket. Well, I believe you peripherally relieved yourself on my shoe, the wombat said to me. He do what now, professor? His friend said. No, 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 he's already done it, the professor said. You meant to say, he's done what now? I meant what, his friend said. I didn't piss on anyone's shoe, I said. You most certainly did, look, and he pointed to his right shoe right next to me. It didn't look wet. He said, you were talking on your phone and you leaned back a little and urine splashed all over my shoe. On whom's shoe has he pissed, his friend asked. Both of you be quiet and let me think, the professor said. I didn't piss on your shoe, man, I said, shaking the last couple drips and tucking it away. Maybe he did it, and I motioned to the other guy. Bruce, the professor said. I don't know his name. Listen, that gentleman standing next to you is my center fielder, Bruce. We carpool to work together. We're neighbors. Why would he urinate on my shoe? I'm not saying... He pissed on your shoe. I'm just saying that I didn't do it. Actually, you are saying he pissed, to use your harsh parlance, on my shoe. Because if you're saying you didn't, there's no one here except good old Bruce. Yeah, no one but Bruce, Bruce said. <laughs> if I did, it was an accident, I said, walking over to wash my hands. 
There's no if, sir. You did it unequivocally. Sorry, I said. You don't sound sorry. You sound like you're only extending contrition to get out of this mess you've made. You sound like you think this is funny, so, so do you? Do you think this is funny? I dried my hands and threw the towel toward the trash can, missed. Then I turned to leave. Good evening to you gents, I said. But the two wombats stood in my way. Answer me, please, the professor said. Is this funny? Bruce stuck his fingers out, weakly pushing me, pushing me like he knew he had a slew of softball backup. But otherwise, if it was just the two of us, he knew I'd kick his ass all over the bathroom. You got something to say to Bruce, Bruce said. And then I grabbed him. Lousy thing was I knew I was outnumbered no matter what, so I figured I'd go for an early knockout. Take care of these two without the other wombats knowing about it and get out of the bar as fast as I could. I hoped to overwhelm Bruce with my wily strength and he'd surrender and then I could take care of the professor, but Bruce wrestled back. I got my arms around him good, got them like this, one between his legs, one under an armpit, and I picked him up and then the professor cold cocked me right in the kidney. I fell over backward and Bruce crash landed on top of me. The professor ran to the door and said, we need every wombat in the place to come here now. It's a team emergency. I heard the stampede of squeaking softball sneakers and there I was on the floor underneath Bruce, a wombat completely outnumbered. They barreled into the bathroom. The professor pointed at me and said, this gentleman has wronged not one, but two wombats. First, he micturated on my shoe, then he micta-whatted? Some wombats asked. Micturated, urinated. This bozo whizzed on my shoe. Then he challenged old Bruce to a fight. One man stepped forward. Maybe their manager? Their best player? I don't know, but he was definitely in charge. Okay, there are two outs, he said. It's the bottom of the ninth. What are we going to do? We're going to play ball, they said. I can't hear you, wombats. What? We're going to play ball, the wombat said. Then let's play ball with this sorry son of a bitch, he said. Bruce wiggled off of me and the wombats leaned down and picked me up. They all pitched in, hoisting me in the air. Soon I was as high as they could lift me, like I was on their team and had done something amazing, won a game in the final inning and salvaged a victory that seemed out of reach but we pulled it out in the end, and now they held me up in celebration. I was just another wombat enjoying a beer from a free pitcher, squeaking my white sneakers and fluffing my mustache. I was on the team and I'd done something wonderful, and here we were, a bunch of ecstatic wombats tearing up the town. But that wasn't why they held me up in the air. That wasn't what they had in mind at all, because then the wombats dropped me into the trough. I landed on my back and I kept my eyes closed and the urinal cakes jammed against my spine. I lay in there for 10 or 15 seconds before their salty softball trickles trickled all over me. I didn't even fight or squirm, no reason to, just lay back and tried to cover my mouth with my hands as they baptized me. 
I lay back and tried not to breathe and let every memory of what I'd done to Mired pelt me along with their streams. And I imagine the trough filling up entirely with wombat piss. And the bathroom filling too, and then Reno, and then San Francisco, and every other sad American town, and then the whole world would disappear under an ocean of urine. And we'd all struggle, and we'd all drown, and I felt a type of lousiness I'd never known before. Thank you very much. Now that's what I call a personal apocalypse. <laughs> You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. <laughs>